do. Uh, for those unaware, this is the CITR 101.9 FM Arts Report, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. I'm your host, Jake Clark, and firstly, Happy New Year! Uh, there you go. Sorry for all the yelling. Yeah, that's Happy New Year to everyone. You know, Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas, Convivial Yuletide, Jovial Kwanzaa, whatever you've just experienced. Probably should have mentioned that last episode, and I most likely did. It's, um, the new year is, you know, it's a terrific time. 2019's been be- not been bad so far, as long as you don't read the news. It's actually pretty dandy. Uh, just coming in from Ontario. The weather is the same over there, incidentally. Uh, that is, uh, you know, probably doesn't carry much over here, but, uh, you know, Snow Belt, Ontario, ain't supposed to be green this time of year, folks. Uh, legalization notwithstanding. Uh, now, fortunately, there is a lot coming uh, this year, and we're going to get around to to quite a bit of it. And firstly, I just want to say uh, something about a show coming to the Havana Theatre this uh, very soon, coming right up just a second, just as soon as I can scan the press release. (laughs) The height of professionalism. Yes, uh, Thursday, January 10th to Saturday, January 12th, you can come to the Havana Theatre, which, uh, yeah, it's on. Nice nice, nice venue, nice venue. You can get some Cuban food. They use uh, the real Havana Club 3 in the well for the the mojitos and so forth, which, you know, that's the real deal. That's how you make a mojito, Uh, the way Hemingway would have intended. Well, really, I mean, he had his mojitos and daiquiris made without sugar. He was a diabetic. In any case, uh, you can see Unscriptured, which is a one-man show courtesy of a... Oh, yep, just a small... I'm all caught in the throat when I realize that, <clears throat> courtesy of Travis, sorry, of Travis Bernard, Travis Bernhard, uh, and Unscriptured you may be familiar with, uh, it is a Vancouver Fringe show that, t- Fringe show, one day I will have the diction to be able to say that, not today, but one day, I'm calling it, that's my resolution for 2019, to be able to say Fringe show with alacrity, oh my god, I did it, I made it, I, I'm in it, I finally managed to do it, okay, that's pretty terrific, I'm gonna count that one in my favor. Yeah, so, Unscriptured at the Havana Theater, courtesy of Travis Bernard. Now, uh, Unscriptured is a completely improvised church service for a religion made up on the spot and based on an audience suggestion. Now, that to me sounds like an amazing improv game, and given the buzz this took, at the, this acquired at the Fringe, unfortunately we weren't able to cover it then, uh, but it really, really did draw a lot of eyes and ears. Given that, I'm going to say this is probably worth checking out. Again, this is at the Havana, Saturday the 10th to, uh, Thursday the 10th, excuse me, uh, to Saturday the 12th. That's at 1212 Commercial Drive, the Havana Theater. Just reading the press release, 1212 Commercial Drive, the Havana Theater. It's a nice street, Commercial Drive, I will say. That's that's the one point in, in the entirety of Vancouver where I'm reminded of Montreal. Like, that's a rare thing to me. And I think my affinity for the Havana, personally, comes from the fact that uh, uh, many, many moons ago, uh, I uh, reviewed my first show uh, for the Arts Report at the Havana, a show called 52 Pickup. Uh, and I, um, you know, looking back on it, that show was, uh, it was a show. It had a good gimmick, I will say that. And uh, the thing that I recall distinctly about that, about this review, is I said, it's like a Chuck Lorre show. And I meant that in a positive context. I've been doing some thinking about a few things recently, like just just odd things sometimes. Like, and I I, I do realize this. I was kind of brought up on Two and a Half Men, to a degree. 
I don't know if my demeanor on air proves that a little or extremely, but yeah, that was one of the founded. There, there were three shows that I watched a lot as a kid because I didn't know how to. I didn't know, you know, how to figure out the television, how to figure out television channels. But we had these shows on DVD, and those shows were when I was when I was in early part of elementary school, SpongeBob, and then uh, after that, Mash because I would watch that with my mom, and then after that there was Two and a Half Men. And I had, like, the first six seasons of that on DVD. Watched the entire thing all the way through, I want to say, probably three times a piece each and a lot just by skimming the favorite episodes, you know? There's a lot of theories I could do on Two and a Half Men. Like, I've thought more about it than I probably should have. I've, in all likelihood, thought more about it than anybody except Chuck Lorre, given the vanity cards. Those, those are just little things. I, I do consider about Two and a Half Men, though, is that Two and a Half Men had potential as a series, I do think, to have been just a really good sitcom. It didn't happen. That seldom happens with Chuck Lorre's shows because they basically run into the ground. The Big Bang Theory uh, went off the air, I believe it's this year, had its last season, and I had that on uh, on DVD, too. Uh, that would have been in high school. And the th- this is the thing I realized about The Big Bang Theory. Watching that, I got up to, like, the fourth season and just stopped. Like, the thing that I realize about The Big Bang Theory pretty centrally is that I don't realize why they're friends. I really don't. Like, I under- no, I understand why, I should say, but I don't get it. And the reason I don't get it is because the friendships all seem pretty solidly toxic. And this is the thing I've realized about The Big Bang Theory. People have pointed this out at length, ad nauseum. And a friend of mine best described it, though, uh, as a... Um, Geek blackface is what he called it. And, you know, it's not quite that, because if you're going to relate those concepts, I don't think that flies necessarily. But as he explained it, it is these, it is a very shallow trapping of what is, I am told, and what I've experienced to be a a very, a somewhat defensive uh, area of culture. And that is interesting to look back on in retrospect, because that's one of those things that you don't really get at the time, but that it is, it's correct. It's a thing that's going on. So when I look back on these Chuck Lorre shows, and when I look back on what I was comparing 52 Pickup to, what I was comparing them to are these, um, I think that a review of the first season of Two and a Half Men said, tart writing. And... I love screwball comedy. It's one of my favorite genres. It's a genre I have watched a lot of, like, in terms of film. Like, we're talking about TV shows here, but in terms of movies, like, some movies I really do love are the screwball comedies of Preston Sturgis, you know, things like that. Like, I I really do enjoy those, and I get a kick out of those. And those have been very uh, formative, shall we say. But looking back on Two and a Half Men, you see the same tendency. And I think you see that tendency across the board because all sitcoms owe something to Neil Simon. All, all sitcoms that, all, I should say all friend sitcoms owe something to Neil Simon. An intense informative debt to Neil Simon because of The Odd Couple. Not the show, I mean the original play. Like, the, the original play, by the way, if you haven't seen that movie, Jack Lemmon, Walter Matthau, definitely try and track it down. It's a lovely movie. It's a great movie. And I, what I realize about that is that there's a lot of this verbal back and forth. These, I wouldn't, necessarily, not even necessarily, well, they are quotable lines, but... What they come across, they come across in such a way that it does sort of spike you. Like it does keep the dynamic live. Like uh, I just remember Oscar in the original one is that he lays out these sandwiches. He says, "Hey, anybody want a sandwich with green stuff?" And he's like, "What's the green stuff? Uh, it's either very new cheese or very old meat." 
<laughs> yes, uh, thunderous silence falls over everybody. Uh, I hope someone got enjoyment out of that. If so, uh, please do. It's a wonderful film. Uh, and this is the thing I realize. Chuck Lorre, is, his, his writers are good with one-liners, but it is the series are so shallow that it does eventually, they just, it just falls apart and all you're left on are these random references that mean nothing. And I think it was pointed out that it, with the Big Bang Theory, it's like, eh, that's a science thing, could be the, the, the sum of a lot of the jokes. I do understand this, though, because I do understand the appeal of the Big Bang Theory, because I understand the appeal of, I do especially understand the appeal of, uh, of Jim Parsons as an actor, <laughs> and, and, I, and Kaylee Kalko, for that matter. I do, I do think that they're entertaining actors, and despite how insufferable Sheldon Cooper can be as a character, I do respect that they've managed to carry, I do get that they've managed to carry him as far as they can, um, and I don't think he's the best example really, of that characterization, but, you know, you can you can do it. And there is a Sheldon Cooper rule, I would think, is if you're going to portray a genius on fiction, contrast that portrayal with Sheldon Cooper. And if you could sub out the... And if you could preface any of their lines with, as Sheldon Cooper would have said, rewrite. Yeah, that's uh, probably good advice from somebody whose last published work was a table read performed in London, Ontario. Ha 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 laughter concealing real pain. What else have we got? What else have we got coming up? You see, Unscriptured wouldn't necessarily have that problem because it's an improv show. I do give credit for this with a show like Unscriptured, you know, that when you have something that is this kind of, it is really a high concept show, uh, you, you, to carry that through, you need a really solid attention to, I, I don't know necessarily, what matters might be the best way to care. The best way to phrase it, I am sorry for anybody listening with headphones, by the way, about that. I just do that sometimes. You know, I used to stutter, so I'm trying to compensate for it. I've noticed myself doing that. Maybe you guys do. Maybe you don't. I don't know. I hope you don't. In any case, Unscriptured seems awesome. Uh, actually, you know what? Why Why just, uh, why settle for my unqualified observations when you can have uh, the, oh my, the, uh, the, the observations of uh, check the program's Melanie Trump, Melanie Trump Hoover. I was going to say that got very close to a different name. Um, Bernard is an intuitive and wildly talented performer. With Unscriptured, he eschews his usual stage magic to explore the enduring pull of collective spirituality in a spontaneously created church service. And it is brilliant! Okay, the, the brilliant was in all caps, so I read it accordingly. Um, more subdued, View Edmonton. If you only see one show this fringe, let it be this one. I, I hear that a lot. Those, those are, I could do a category of those shows that are like, if you only see one show this fringe, see this one. There's, there's a couple of those. And then, incredibly clever, revitalizing the collective spiritual experience through goofy ad-libbing. That's also the View Edmonton. I probably should have done it. Same accent for that one. I don't, I don't know. This is the thing I've realized is that the Canadian accent is... See, I take it for granted. Now, I'm from Ontario, and I, but I've been recently been watching Letterkenny, which is, I think, possibly the most heroic elevation of the Ontario Hick accent you possibly could have. Uh, short of Rod Beatty, who I just consider a delightful actor and am proud to, uh, to say I've seen live performing, uh, I think that was Wingfield's Inferno. Yeah... You know, I imagine myself as a man like Thoreau, dispensing homespun advice to simple people. I think that was from the original Wingfield Farm. Those, those were some great series. Those were great series of one-man shows. And uh, Letterkenny got Jared Kiso, like, some hockey players came up the road the other day. Oh, McMurray, how are you now? How much time you done pulling on your own horn there, bud? Like, things like that. 
you know, it, it, it's it's interesting to me. And the funnier thing is that it, that's sort of, I would say, an accent owing a lot to the Irish, Scottish, and Welsh sort of settlement because that was a Commonwealth at the time. And then as you get farther Midwest, you get like the, the, the Swedes and that's where you get the Minnesota accent in the States. And that's where you get the Alberta accent, you know? Yeah. 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 I don't know about that. You know, with the really heavy accent, you get the D's like that, you know? Uh, I think one person who is illustrative of the Canadian accent in a bizarre and specific way uh, is the Dr. Jordan Peterson uh, in that he sounds something like Canadian Kermit the Frog. I'm going to give an impression a try here because I've never actually heard it. You know, it's it's very dark in hell. You know, you gotta you gotta keep yourself out of the underworld. You gotta keep yourself away from away from all that. You know, you gotta straighten your back and you gotta you gotta you gotta make eye contact with people when you speak to them. You know, or else or else you're gonna end up in the underworld. I am paraphrasing, and I do understand I'm misrepresenting his argument for comedy. I don't actually have any animosity towards Jordan Peterson. I do think the people that are receiving his advice generally the people who just need to hear it. That doesn't mean I agree with him on things, but just, you know, it's, it's call your battles there. Yeah. I mean, Jordan Peterson's view of religion is probably less fun than that in Unscriptured, but I am assuming that Unscriptured will have about the same fluidity. The difference is Unscriptured is an improv show. Again, I, I'm just really kind of exploring this concept through tangents because this is the, you know, this is the start of the year and, you know, you got to kick it off somehow. Yeah. I, I, I will say that. I will say that um, you have a show like Unscriptured. It really is very interesting as an experiment in form. And I know I sound, I, I know I sound up my, okay, content warning. I know I sound up my own ass when I say that or up someone else's. I don't know, you be the judge of that. But it really is because, you know, when you do something like that, especially when you do one-man shows, there's a limit of what you can do convincingly. And when you do an, a one-man or one-woman or one-person show unconvincingly, then it's just sad. It's just like, it's just like you, you reenacting something like you, you, um, what, what is the best? It is, it is, is a bad reenactment of very singular imagination, I would say, because it often doesn't come across. Putting a one-person show together, difficult thing, possible, but difficult. It, it, easily difficult, maybe, in a certain way, because you only have to deal with one person, and, you know, you, you you don't have to, well, I guess you do technically have to pay them, you just don't, the, I mean, quibbling aside, uh, putting a one-person show together, easier through organization, but, you know, just more difficult and most everything else, you know, because you have to put one over on the audience, like doing comedy or spending an hour largely noteless in, in a radio station doing shout outs with no help on the second of the year. Man, did that get specific? Yes, it did. Let's figure out what else we have today. And what do we have here? Oh, yeah. So some of you may have heard of this. This is Tyrant Studios Winter Lounge Series, uh, which is at the former, actually, it's the current. It's the, it's, it's Tyrant Studios is above the historic Penthouse Nightclub, um, which is Friday Jazz and the Comic Strip. You see, you see, you see what, you see what they did there? Because there's chippers in there. Yeah, okay, fine. The co so Friday Night Jazz is a weekly live jazz show and bar, uh, which actually has, I think, one of the best ads for a jazz show you could possibly have, which is, join us while we make our jazz noises here! Because that's that, that's what I, I hear when I see advertisements for jazz. That, I, what, that's what I hear when I see something? Man, the synesthesia is really, really doing me some favors. No, um, that's what I, that's what sort of jazz advertisements are translated 
as to me because frankly you know jazz is an interesting art form and it's interesting to see it in trans not in translation in performance however jazz is not dominant anymore rock is going where jazz is now by the way for 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 those wearing leather jackets and growing their hair past the nape of their neck yeah so nevertheless jazz at one point used to be on top for a while used to be on top i would say like when did perry como have a show 50s yeah so jazz was dominant like i'd say jazz got real big in the 20s and then through till probably the mid 60s was on top you know louis armstrong played him out louis armstrong played him out with the oldest man to get a number one hit, and that was, Hello, Dolly! That knocked the Beatles off the charts, too. So that tells you something about the power of jazz, or more accurately, about the awesomeness of Pops Armstrong, because that man was, is kind of a hero. Like, if I had heroes, he'd be a hero. And, uh, I think, did Christopher Hitchens say that? He'd be another. But, as far as I am aware, and as far as I believe most people are aware, jazz is no longer the dominant art form uh, outside of most elevators. So the, the, the corollary of that is that you have a very small jazz fan base. And I enjoy it because I like the art form, but I do feel that it's something that is overly niche in many cases because there are beautiful jazz songs out there that are covered by a lot of people, but they become these standards. And you do wonder eventually who you're performing your standards for, because you're just compare you're performing them eventually for people who are comparing the standards to an earlier iteration of the standard. And that, I do understand how that works in terms of a songbook, but it's just an endless contest of chops. Frankly, I get that impression about comedy sometimes in this town, you know? It's a bunch of people finessing their chops, mostly for other performers in that medium. So, I don't know what that encourages exactly. I hope the Penthouse does, though, because they have Friday jazz throughout January. On Friday, January 4th, there is the James Shee Quartet doing classic piano jazz. Uh, James Shee is an up-and-coming jazz pianist and composer from Vancouver. He's currently studying medicine at UBC. Oh, boy, I really shouldn't have slagged too hard on jazz here. I'm going to feel bad about it. Uh, He'll be accompanied by Ardashir Burkhamrakati on saxophone, uh, Toshi Milardo on bass, and Todd Stewart on drums. Uh, so that sounds, sounds pretty cool. Some nice quartet jazz. I can dig that. Uh, Astrid Sars Trio and Guests, which is a vocalist, flautist, and saxophonist Astrid Sars, uh, returning there with Russell Schulberg on bass and Jamie... Oh, I thought that was Jimmy Carter for a second. I was thinking, man, he's picking up a new hobby uh, on drums. Playing a mixture of classic New Orleans and original jazz um, with guests including Ross Barrett, Tim Sars, and Nathan Barrett. I don't know who those people are. Um... So that, that one should be fun. New Orleans jazz is fun, you know, good stuff. I mean, that's still evolving to a degree. And again, there is still jazz being evol- evolving. It's just, you know, you, you get your, your Wynton Marsalis severe, like, you know, just, just, just think about Ornette Coleman a lot, you know, and we're, we're going to be at a certain point. I'm thinking, eh, I, I don't, I don't. Ornette Coleman, where did that come? I meant to say Art Blakely there. I have no idea where that confusion came from. Uh, no, just think about Ornette Coleman a lot, and you're going to figure out what a migraine feels like real quick. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's some New Orleans jazz coming out that's cool. I think Trombone showed... Trombone... Tr- ah! He was at the Chan Center a little while ago. Trombone Shorty. Uh, by a little while, I mean two years. He was great. Um, you know, hold up, wait a minute, hold up, wait a... M-. That's a great song, yeah. Um, and then uh, on Friday, January 18th, you have the Winston Mat- Matsushita Trio... 
uh, playing avant piano jazz. Sorry that the mouse began moving of its own volition. I'm frightened now. Um, uh, that's Vancouver-born pianist uh, Winston Matsushita, uh, who's a U of T alumnus from the University of Toronto Jazz Program. Okay, more on that in a minute. Uh, his soulful sound has been featured in all of Toronto's major jazz venues. Yeah, I just read it too. Um, and uh, performing with... Oh, you can be heard as a solo and sideman in numerous Canadian recordings and appeared in numerous short films and web series. Okay, so he's doing pretty well. Um, yeah, so that's avant-piano jazz. I'm not going to lie. Not really, uh, not, really, not, not really getting me here. Not really... Um, not really uh, sort of dragon drawn me in, but you know, you know, it could, could change, could change here. Uh, then you have the David Sekula Quartet, which is progressive guitar jazz. Um, uh, this trio evolved out of casual jam sessions uh, based around the desire to explore some common ground around the collective musical taste. Okay, I like what I'm reading here. With a constant emphasis on groove, melodic, and rhythmic interplay and chance taking, this trio continues to explore an ever-growing repertoire of both tunes from the American Songbook okay, and original compositions with a forward-thinking view, yet always with a sense of swing, warmth, and reverence for the history of music. Featuring Joe Poole, drums, Jeff Gammon, bass, and David Sekula on guitar. Okay, so that's like that sounds like like just sort of a semi prog outfit, just sort of preparing to be a, uh, a full blown prog outfit. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm maybe I'm writing them off too quickly. That's when, when whenever you hear progressive in a genre. And I like progressive rock as well, but like it's it's your you're, you're setting the bar at a certain point for for the, your your audience's suspension of well your audience's patience. Frankly, I mean a lot of the time. Like this is the thing. I, again, I like progressive rock, but. This is a thing that jazz has a problem with, too, is when you have, like, the 18-minute songs with no lyrics, that's a problem. That's a problem for me as a listener, because if your 18-minute song has lyrics, I'm paying attention to the lyrics. You know, and that, that's, that's fine. I get the point of that. Not, not don't know too many examples that go extremely well, but, you know, I do get the point. One thing that I don't necessarily understand is why you want to sort of court that unless you have I don't know man I, I don't know Bitches Brew is not an album that really I, I, I guess I'm not sophisticated enough to, to get it honestly I like Sketches of Spain it's a great Miles Davis album but that sort of thing I don't know it doesn't uh, does not quite does not quite uh, does not quite go over very well with me you see I I might have been stalling a little bit there because it seemed like our uh our uh, our thing was possessed. Uh, the computer was possessed. The computer demons are coming for me. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, not not that, not that. That's sometimes how I feel, but uh, but not now. Um, so uh, we're gonna get you some PSAs, which of course have been long overdue, and I know you've all been slavering in wait. Uh, then we shall return for some more shout-outs for some great things, including uh, a huge movie roundup from our buddies at the Rio, Van City, and the Cinematheque. Uh, stay tuned. This has been The Arts Report, and I'm Jake Clark. This band is really good, and I've been wanting to find out more about local music. Yeah, I heard about it through CITR and Discorder. What's that? Um, it's a radio station. You can review all the music that comes in and help out with touring bands or just do some data entry to get started in their music department. Oh, cool. Yeah, you can just email volunteer at citr.ca and they can help you get into the station or just come in whenever. Well, I'll be there, so...
Discorder, that free magazine from CITR, has been documenting the best in music, arts, and culture since 1983. Let's see what one man of prestige has to say about Discorder. What up, though? This is Big Snoop Dogg, and I fucks with Discorder magazine. How about that? <laughs> Smoke eat every day. Pick up a copy around Vancouver or f with Discorder online at discorder.ca. Discorder magazine has been supporting local music for over 30 years. Thanks to the long term support of the Rickshaw Theatre, Discorder lives. Favorite bands are playing at the Rickshaw Theater. Check out their calendar just behind the cover of Discorder Magazine or at rickshawtheater.com. Did you miss me? We're back! Okay, I'll stop, I'll stop doing that. Um, okay, so this uh, shout-out is a very interesting thing. I'm sort of racking my brains for the past 30 seconds as to how to put this over. This is a theater production. This is a proper theater production by Electric Company Theater. This is a world premiere, too, of uh, Daniel Brooks' groundbreaking new work, The Full Light of Day, directed by Kim Collier, which goes from January 7th to 12th at the Vancouver Playhouse. Now, um, this is essentially, so it's an allegorical play where a terminally ill woman confronts the, uh, the choices that brought her family privileges and privilege and with bravery takes a risk to secure their ultimate redemption. There's a little more I could read from the press release, but not a whole lot. Um, this is a multimedia production in that uh, it is uh, it is in, in that it is uh, sorry it, blah, 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 and it has Gabriel Rose in it. So I just I you know that that should be good enough you know as as a shadow because Gabriel Rose is delightful. She's a treasure. Um, this is shot through 14 live streaming cameras. Uh, with state-of-the-art productions in film. This is also from the press release. Basically, this is a multimedia production, and it's interesting stuff because it's uh, very th themed very heavily on, I do believe, on these, on essentially on ethical choices with, um, I'm going to quote this again, systematic corruption, ethical conundrums. And yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a point where we kind of have to confront that. I do find it interesting that um, they're choosing to do this through this multi-camera setup, which seems to be this sort of very comprehensive and also bizarrely also kind of scattered way to look at it, which I think is how we do see these decisions in a lot of ways. I don't know about you, but for me, uh, just figuring out head or tail of things is just an absolute terrifying a content morning clusterfuck. And uh, you get uh, you get some of our finer actors uh, in this, too. You get Dean Paul Gibson, who's a bard on the beach mainstay. Um, you have, as I mentioned, Gabrielle Rose, which is pretty terrific. Uh, and you also have... Um, we have uh, uh, John Ying from uh, Kids Conve Kim's Convenience, and um, yeah, and from uh, yeah, so you have you have some some, some pretty some pretty uh, some pretty highbrow Vancouver institutions hereabouts. So yeah, uh, check that one out. This is a this is a this is I would say pretty uh, pretty top of the line uh, for Vancouver. So well, just not, not just for Vancouver. That was a dumb qualification in general. Uh, um, Electric Company Theater is, you know, kind of done some interesting things in the past, but this would be the first show of theirs that we've had come our way. So, as as I recall, so 
yeah, I think that's worth checking out, just sort of a look into it. Because multimedia shows are really interesting because they're – I find that this is a common thing. When you're a theater company and you have a decently sized budget, you're like, you know, let's do a multimedia show. Let, let's give her. And I get why. Because if you're a theater show – I think if you're a, if you're a theater show, if you're the people on stage with the costumes and so forth and the pancake makeup – okay, I'm starting to sound like Homer Simpson. That wasn't intentional. I really should do less of these voices. It's just what I hear in my head. Shut up, Harvey. Look, um, the thing that I figure about it is that it's often a sign of good budget. And – that does make sense because there's a few ways theater companies go to really rein it in. I think the Arts Club did that not to rein it in, sorry, to do the opposite. The Arts Club had Beauty and the Beast this year, which was a pretty bombastic attempt to put over an animated film. And this is the funny thing. There's, there was Beauty and the Beast and there was Harvey, uh, I believe. Was it this year or last year? Um, one of the years. Yeah, one of the years. Um, and... Oh, no, no, it's, it's A Wonderful Life this year, and it was Harvey last year. And the thing about it is Harvey was originally a play. I get that. Uh, it's A Wonderful Life, I don't believe was, and I am certain Beauty and the Beast was not. Well, it could have been a cabaret show. I mean, that's got a weird history of adaptation. But I'm going to assume no. I'm going to assume the earliest depiction of Beauty and the Beast that I'm going to deal with is the, uh, is the, um, is the, um, is the, uh, what's, what's his name? Uh, what's his name? The, the, the gay Frenchman who made the beautiful art. Um, the Cocteau. Cocteau, yeah. Um, I'm going to assume that Cocteau's, uh, Sleeping Beauty is the earliest we have to deal with. So as an adaptation, Sleeping Beauty, you know, it's been in Perils Fairy Tales, it's been on film, don't know if it's been on stage. Ditto with It's a Wonderful Life. You know what? I'm going to let Google resolve that because It's a Wonderful Life could possibly have been a film, in which case I will eat my words and, uh, uncomplain. But the reason Harvey is uh, – no, it's based, so it's based on a short story slash booklet, The Greatest Gift. Uh, it was self-published. Oh, that was self-published. That's interesting. Okay. Fun stuff. Um, yeah, so that was a booklet, and it was bought by RKO, and it became uh, – okay, very cool. So, no. Uh, Harvey was a, uh, was a play beforehand. And this is the thing that I do – I do really feel this about something like Harvey because Harvey is one of my favorite films of all time. It, it, and it is, to me, not only – it's not only an iconic film, but it is real it, – it is just it, – it's, it's a life-affirming one. Harvey is a legitimately joyous and cheerful film about being a human being, and those are rare things. Then is now. I'm, I'm not saying that's a characteristic of films of that period or now. It's – those things that manage to put that sentiment over genuinely are hard to find and they're almost impossible to make. Like, I think that the process of filmmaking kind of strains your faith in humanity just a little bit. And uh, just to be able to put that over, yeah, I, I, re I respect it. And Harvey works that way because you have this character, like, Elwood P. Dowd, he's a harmless person. He's a nice person, but he's also a drunk and he's probably legit, probably Ill, mentally ill. Well, he's probably mentally ill. Who the thing is, Elwood P. Dowd does nobody any harm. Now, that's not the way... That is that is far and away much simpler than this issue ever will be in reality for most people. But the thing about Harvey is it raises the question, what is this good example? Elwood P. Dowd doesn't cause anybody any harm. 
then just let him have his delusion. That's that's sort of it. If someone is happy, let them be. Or if someone is happy and causing somebody no harm, let them be. That's a simple lesson that's difficult to carry through because there are complications to it. But that is, if not a applicable lesson, it's a noble one. And that's a lot of what can, and that is a lot of what can be taken from Harvey, I think. And wow, well that would drift a little bit. Harvey works to play, though, because it puts that one over. It really does. It's good about that. The thing, though, that you don't do with Beauty and the Beast, for example, is tell that story in that way. Because Beauty and the Beast, as it was made into a film, is a big animated film. These lush visuals, right? And you can do that in theater. You can. And it looks like they did. Arts Club looked like they pulled out these stops. And I think for me, the judgment is, do I necessarily want to see that when the film exists? See, I'm a curious person, so probably yeah. But also, I get the tickets for free. So if I was to say, do I want to pay 30 plus bucks a person to go and see this thing that I know works in a form that I can obtain for $5 or for free? Like, no, Uh, probably not. Just the, the, the cost-benefit analysis of that one's probably going to end up not in favor of the arts club, which is something I feel sorry to say. Similarly, with something like It's a Wonderful Life, I don't think you can put the spectacle of that because there isn't really one. I've seen good pro- productions of It's a Wonderful Life on stage because of the opposite. However, by the same token, it's, are you going to do it better? And in this case, I think I seem to just be coming down in favor of the Jimmy Stewart performance, which, you know, I do like Jimmy Stewart, but... Uh, I, I will say this. It's a wonderful life, simple story. You can tell it on stage. Same with Harvey. I think the scale of things you need to do for Beauty and the Beast, like you need to go hard or go home on that on stage. And a lot of the time it's just, you know, you're you're only gonna be able to make it you're only gonna be able to make it that. You're only gonna be able to make it a bunch of guys or and, and women in period clothing on stage doing a bunch of things that, you know, to you are going to be very impressive, but are also going to be costing you a lot of money to put on each time. It's a huge production. It's a good sign of a budget, and I'll respect it. It's just, you know, I don't... It it seems like it is very dangerously possible for a production that puts that much into it to become superfluous, and that's unfortunate if you sink that much money into it. Anyway, I am not the Arts Club's accountant, so that bear that holds no bearing on that whatsoever. Nor does that hold any bearing on electric on electric company theater, who do at least to their credit seem to be doing something that is uh, quite advanced and quite different, and they're using some big names to do it. So that's that's, that's not the comparison. The uh, the electric uh, company is not doing Beauty and the Beast. In other news, yes. What are we telling? What are you going to tell me next, Jake? The sky is slate colored. Yeah. Well, it is now. Well, actually, it's sort of a velvety, unseeable. What is the color of night? That's a weird thing. It's a weird thought, isn't it? Because I don't know if it's ever completely black. Is it? I don't know. That's an odd question. Somebody want to call in to answer that question? Does anybody know the phone number? Because I don't. No. Ah, uh, no. That 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 would be uh that would be a probably contentious question. What is the color of night? And we end up getting into a fight. Yeah, I don't want to do that. Whew, I tell you, some of these days, you know, you can get into, I've seen lost, like, I've been thinking, you know, about the law a lot recently that we live in. And it's interesting to see how that climate is going to stand when you look at law students. Because 
if you're lost, I, I saw this. I was in Peter Aller the other day. Well, not the other day, today, because today was the only. The point is, for the joke, I did literally see, well, there isn't really a joke here. It's more of an observation. There was a student and a student, and I believe a professor at loggerheads over whether or not it was a nice day. Now, I'm not saying that's a necessarily bad use of your law school, your law student's time. I'm saying that's definitely a bad use of your law student's time. Unless the student started the contention, in which case. Uh, actually, no, that's probably how it started. Yeah. Yeah, first show of the year. I tell you. Never say die, right? I was saying it. Shouting it. From the rooftops. What else is going on in Vancouver these days? A lot, Jake. Well, thank you so much. Uh, there are seriously some big things coming around, though. Other theater things uh, are Lion in the Streets from UBC Theater. We're going to have an interview, actually, next week with Sophia Pascalides, I believe, um, uh, who is starring in that production. And that seems to be quite a haunting production. It seems to be it's about a the ghost of a murdered Filipina child who returns to her neighborhood. Uh, so that sounds pretty grave. That sounds pretty uh, interesting uh, as far as that goes. Another one that is uh, a big one that we are going to do a review of is A Prayer for Owen... A, pr a Prayer! <laughs> a Prayer for Owen Meany, uh, which is based off the John Irving novel. I haven't read it either. Uh, at the, Wait, have I? Oh, shit, I actually might have. Oh, come on! Which is based off uh, the John Irving novel, which I may have read. Um, and it is on at the Pacific Theater, uh, coming up very soon. Uh, and that should be interesting, you know, it's, it's, you know, about the Vietnam War and so forth. Probably some bears in Vienna in there, knowing John Irving. I don't know, I've, because I've read the Cider House Rules, read World, Life According to Garp. Oh, boy. Is it the World According to Garp or Life According Well, let me just settle that right now. Google is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Garp. The world according to Garp. It is the world according to Garp. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, interesting. So, yeah, I would I would be interested to see a, a, a stage production of uh, The World According to Garp, interestingly. Uh, <laughs> uh, for those who know what scene I'm talking about, um, you should probably keep it to yourselves. Okay, um, you know, I feel like taking another PSA break because, well, we got to do the film roundup, and I kind of want to do that in one go, so we can, uh, so I can just fire them out there. Ah, take a brief hiatus, be right back. Without the help and support of our friends, we here at CITR wouldn't be able to bring you all the great music, art, cinema, and culture that you love. Thanks to the long-standing support from the Rio Theater, we are able to keep you informed on all the great artists, films, and everything else coming to town there. For all the current information about who and what's playing at the Rio Theater, visit their website at www.riotheater.ca. Oh, 
lord, I need a creative outlet. How on earth can I channel everything that's inside of me? You know you can do that at CITR and Discorder, right? Pardon me? Yeah, you can illustrate for Discorder magazine or take photographs of events and artists and they can teach you how to use Photoshop in their media lab. That is so exhilarating. It fills my soul with lightning. Yeah, just email volunteer at citr.ca and they can help you get started or just come into the station whenever. I wouldn't miss it for the world. That is kind of how I came to CITR, by the way. Well, actually, less of I need an artistic outlet and more of I won't stop talking. Is there a way I can utilize that? As you have seen, there indeed is. So the film roundup. Here we go now. Here we go. Here we go. Take it. Okay, it turned into an aerobics video, and that was weird. So firstly, uh, as we've heard their PSA, it only fits that we mentioned them. The Rio Theater. Yes, 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 indeed. The Rio is actually having a spate of productions this coming week. Um, they've got a Lord of the Rings trilogy marathon on the 5th and the 6th, which, if I am correct, is in... Yeah, I really should... Yeah, that's Saturday and Sunday. I really shouldn't have had to check that. Um, they've also got um, uh, the free uh, the rock climbing documentary, Free Solo. Sounds invigorating. Uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor, which is a Mr. Rogers documentary. That seems interesting. That's 2018's highest grossing documentary, gross, highest grossing documentary apparently. And, uh, oh, it looks like uh, Bo Burnham uh, in 8th grade. That's right, that's right, that's right. Um... That's right, yeah. And uh, they've got... And Vox Lux, uh, which is an apocalyptic star is born with Natalie Portman, Rafi Cassidy, Jude Law, and Willem Dafoe opening exclusively at the Rio Theater starting on January 10th. Okay, that I want to see. That I just that I just really... I, I literally just read about that right now. That seems great. Oh, and they're doing Black Klansman too. Okay, that movie was... Uh, that, that had some... Uh, that had some good. That, that that had some moments to it. You get the uh, the phone call, phone call scene. You know, yeah, yeah. I I, I can't I can't repeat it because uh, I, I I really shouldn't have to explain that. But uh, yeah, yeah. That looks like there's gonna be some fun stuff. Oh, and at Attorney's Gate, if you still want more Willem Dafoe, uh, there's that. And then there's Loving Vincent too. If you want to hear about the guy at Attorney's Gate is actually about and his uh, uh, his. Attempts to make his face asymmetrical and make some beautiful paintings. And guess which one we remember him for. Yeah. Fun stuff. Uh, what else here? Oh, yeah. Uh, our buddies at Van City. Uh, so Van City's got some big stuff. Some Molto bene! Because it's the Italian... I don't know why I use that as my exclamation. Molto bene! See? It works. Uh, for the Italian Film Festival, which is going uh, actually quite remotely. That's, that's this weekend. You get um, The Man Who Bought the Moon, which is about a Sardinian man who has legal title to the moon. I know, it sounds delightful. Uh, Allegro non troppo, which I believe is quickly but not all no uh it is a counterculture riposte to disney's fantasia which is another way of saying do mushrooms before you see this uh and it is an often expired it is described as an often inspired manic riff on six classic music staples from debussy dvorak sibelius vivaldi stravinsky and unforgettably ravel's bolero ha no i've seen 10 so it's gonna be well eh, i don't know well, that one stopped dead. Once Upon a Time in America, the extended director's cut. That is a Sergio Leone movie. That's a Sergio Leone movie about uh, Jewish gangsters in New York. That is 
it was Sergio Leone's last movie. It is truly an epic movie. Uh, you get, you know, you get Bobby Milk. You get Robert De Niro doing his thing. You get James Woods, who, you know what? James Woods is a guy I always forget to mention in, like, the list of great actors. He's, like, there with Robert Carlyle. He's a guy who is just a great actor, and he's done some iconic stuff. But, like, we don't remember him for some reason. Like, I remember him in that terrible Sylvester Stallone movie, The Specialist, and he's still the best part in it because he's just douchely awesome for the entire movie. Yeah, what are, you, what, are you, what are you doing with that? He's got, like, the reedy voice. It's harder to do that. Um, you have Look Up, which is about a bored young man named Teko uh, discovering the existence of an upper ground world on Rome's rooftops. A world of fantasy, of children, spaceships, hot air balloons, and secret pathways and passages. Okay, that sounds like a reverse Pizzagate, but I, I don't think it is. Um, oh, a little like an adult earthbound version of The Little Prince. Okay, I'm sold. Um, yeah, forget the whole, forget that. Why, why did I use that? God, I'm... Uh, set in the, and, uh, Boys Cry, oh, that sounds fun, about two teenage pals who hit a pedestrian and they end up in a life of crime, fast money, and corrosive danger. Uh, written and directed by the self-taught twins, the Dinocenzo brothers. Okay, that's cool. All right, that sounds like it could be very noir-ish. Uh, Fist in the Pocket, uh, Tormented by Twisted Desires. Oh, that's a good start. A young man, uh, who is in Look Up as well, <laughs> takes drastic measures to rid his grotesquely dysfunctional family of its various afflictions. That's from 65. So I can, yeah, yeah, that looks, that sounds like it's going to be fun. Uh, Cat on a Highway. Uh, all of these are coming up uh, on, between, on next week, by this weekend and next week, by the way. Right? Like, uh, a lot of them are Friday, Saturday, and then they're going up to Wednesday. There's Cat on a Highway, too, which is on Sunday, um, about an affluent social planner. Uh, and, oh, they're, they're both, uh, I believe, are they both? Oh, their kids start dating, and these two single parents are mismatched. Like, one's from the bad part of town, one's from the good part of the town. It's a class satire, so that's always fun. Um, oh, there's a tribute to Bernardo Bertolucci, which is the conformist. Oh, he died last year, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, well, it was, it was, it was good. He, he also made a lot of epic films. They've got that. Chinichit uh, Babylonia, which is a nod to Kenneth Andrews' Hollywood Babylon, for all of the 11 people who've seen that. Um... That's an early history of the Chinichita Studios, where which I know is the studios that made Caligula. I'm guessing that's not what they want to be remembered for. Uh, there's Umberto D, which is Vittorio De Sica. That was another guy, epic neo-realist sort of guy. Um, fun stuff, post-war Italy. Yeah, 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 we inflict the damage, but you know Mussolini. So, yeah. Uh, Tutte a casa, power to the people. Uh, oh, banned from state TV and shunning the Berlusconi media empire. I like this guy. Uh, Beppe Grillo, okay, is, the, is uh, the comedian and, well, he's an activist too, but he's a comedian. Turns to the streets and the internet to fight political arrogance and corruption, or as Berlusconi knew it, Tuesday. And his popular protest movement, Movimento, uh, Movimento Cinque Stelle, that's five-star movement, movement of five stars, vows to send all politicians home and bring the people to power. This is a documentary, apparently, or something like that. Win a stunning 25% of the vote to become the single largest party in Italy and send 163 ordinary people to parliament. <laughs> Imagine what that's like when someone with no qualifications hijacks a democracy. <laughs> I'm filled with rage. Um, there's Juliet of the Spirits, which is Federico Fellini. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not an angry person. It's, it's all theater. Um, which is Gianni de Venanza using Technicolor for the first, Fellini's first color feature. Wow, very dreamy, very uh, dreamscapey. Um, yeah, oh, there's I'm Back, where Mussolini comes back. It's like, so it's Guess Who's Back with Mussolini. Okay, uh, fair enough. And everybody's fine. 
Uh, this is uh, from Gabriel Mochino. Oh, he's the guy who made seven pounds. And he also made the pursuit of happiness, but he's the guy who made seven pounds. Good lord. Um, with an exp- emotionally expansive ensemble drama. Yeah, because that's what you do after having directed Seven Pounds. Set on a beautiful island, home to a couple celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. Uh, and Clement Weather extends the party behind Breaking Point. Beyond Breaking Point. Okay, so that's a play at some point. That was a play at some point. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Sounds like it's going to be fun. And there is more to it. Uh, I just I just uh, sort of summarized that there because time's a thing and it's linear and it's running out you know uh but definitely check that out we'll probably tell you a little more about that if we can um because there is some really terrific stuff there there's also oh i missed this one uh la comare seca which is uh Bertolucci, which is another Bertolucci movie i think i've seen that. that that's like uh based on a story by pasolini Ooh, oh yeah Oh, uh, yeah, Pasolini. Um, and it's basically Rashomon, but Italians, these police interviews. It's actually it's a pretty good movie. Um, yeah, so that's that's what's going on at uh, Van City Theater. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And what's going on in the Cinematheque here? Oh, yeah, Japan on screen at the Cinematheque. Um, so if you enjoyed the films of one former Axis Power, here's another. Okay, I probably shouldn't have. There is actually one film here that I really do want to see, and that's Mishima Life in Four Chapters, which if I know correctly was written by Paul Schrader, the guy who wrote Taxi Driver. Um, Yukio Mishima, really quick, I could only really give a really quick uh, rundown here, was a uh, novelist, poet, extremely prolific writer uh, in Japan, uh, and he uh, he was known for a few things. He was known for, he had a very uh, morbid, he had a great fascination with death throughout his works, a sort of bizarre, very kind of creepy romanticism. Uh, he was extremely into bodybuilding, got very into that in later life, uh, which intersected, unfortunately, with his, with his other hobby of military nationalism, uh, which he also developed later in life. And uh, he was also gay, which also intersected with both of those hobbies. Uh, yeah, you're starting to see where this is going. Uh, things ended badly uh, for him. Uh, and Ken Ogata's performance in this is apparently supposed to be amazing. And he's a good actor, so I'll give, I'll, I'll give him definitely give credit on that. This a sexually tortured, alienated individualist. Don't you want to see a movie about that guy? I know I do. Yeah, um, but no, really. Like, I, I do think this is going to, this is a very interesting movie. And Paul Schrader is still a great writer. So, yeah, like, uh, credit where credit's due. And this was a Philip Glass score, too. So there's, uh, you know, that's going to be impressive there. Weird, but impressive. Yeah, and there's also uh, there's also some other things. There's also there's also Seven Samurai, which is you know just always a blast. Um, one movie though, I think the reason I think is worth recommending this alone is Kiki's Delivery Service, because what I've been going on about here is I've been cracking wise a lot. I've been I haven't really been teeing off, but I have been cracking wise. And this is the thing about Hayao Miyazaki's films, they are they're beautiful films, they're complex movies, but you know what? I'll, if you watch Kiki's Delivery Service, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to end up going, you know, the world is a terrible place and I'm ashamed to live here. You know, that's a low bar. And I think that's my way of saying that Hayao Miyazaki's movies kind of, you know, they, they kind of make life worth living a little bit. Just, just a little bit. Beautiful stuff. Yeah. There's not much more that I can say about that. They're just, they're just delightful. Um... Consistently funny, optimistic, and exciting, even for the little ones, according to Tom Huddleston, who is one vowel away from being extremely photogenic. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's at the Cinematheque. Um, lovely fellows at the Cinematheque. Yeah. And that's about what we have for the day. 
And uh, because I mentioned him before and because I really do like this album, I want to play out with some uh, with some trombone shorty. So this has been The Arts Report. I'm Jake Clark. And uh, thanks for listening. See you next week. Cheers. Hold up, wait a minute. 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 Hold up, wait a minute.
I'm on the drums. This is Lola. Um, Max is on the guitar. And Holly. Um, 